This is Geek Gab with your hosts, John, Brian, and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back. Geek Gab for Saturday, October 7th, 2017. And we have a big, big show for you today. This is episode 117. Today we're going to be talking about in no particular order uh, three brand new releases. But before we mention which ones, for those of you who maybe cannot see the title of that which you are listening to, you will have to allow that to be a surprise for a moment longer. Let's uh, stop for a second and allow my co-hosts to say hi. Hello. It's good to be back. It's been a great week for Geek. Excited to talk about the uh, stuff we encountered today. How about you, Brian? Oh, I'm, I'm doing phenomenal. Finished up a big editing project, getting back to writing. And uh, so far, I'm, I'm back to writing about 400 words an hour average. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Now, what having... pulp speed is that? I don't even think that's pulp speed. But I got you're, to go. you're just warming up. You're, you're revving <laughs> up to pulp speed. Yeah, it's my first day back. <laughs> give, me, give me a break. Um, that, that's funny that you finished up some editing jobs. You, you said that you were, are you no longer taking um, new editing work? I remember you saying something like that. Not for the rest of the year, but I've, I've got a huge backlog. Basically, and this, you know, this isn't to throw shade at anybody, but authors, especially new authors, can often underestimate how long it can take to complete a project. So I had previous clients approach me and say, hey, you know, I want a book of this length edited. You know, here's when I can get it to you. Here's when I'd like it done. And I looked at my calendar like, oh, okay. Well, I got all my ducks in a row because I can easily, you know, I can finish this guy's book and then that'll happen before the next guy sends it to me. And no, they basically all sent them at once. <laughs> they all had delays. <laughs> so I'm just working through them. You know, I'm just uh, taking them like in the the order of when the the deadline is, not necessarily when... I receive them. So if you're listening and you sent me your, your manuscript a while ago, hard and fast deadline. Um, sorry, I got to take care of the dudes who have paid me to get it done by a certain date first. And while so, doing it right. uh, before we jump into the main show, um, we had episodes of Geek Gab Game Night and Geek Gab on the Books released this week. Uh, and those are all either available or going to be available at all the usual outlets here on YouTube, on SoundCloud, on uh, the Apple iTunes store and on the Google play store. And I believe neither of them are up yet, but they will be up shortly after this show. So we'll be releasing all three of those. So you can download those and listen to those today. Today, we're going to be talking about fully three new releases. We're going to be talking about Cuphead, the brand new video game. We're going to be talking about Blade Runner 2049. And we're going to be talking about Flatliners, which is a remake of a great, great movie uh, from long, long, long ago. Um, so I want to start off talking about Cuphead. Um, now, I some people on Twitter... They saw me mention Cuphead and immediately jumped to the conclusion that I had bought the game and would be playing the game and would finish the game and would be reviewing the entire game here on the show. I would like to tell you, unfortunately, to break your hearts, all three of those assumptions were wrong. All of them were wrong. I did not buy the game. I did not play the game. And I did not finish the game in time to review it for the show. We, for the review of Cuphead, or rather a, a first look of Cuphead, we are going to go to co-host, gamer, host of Geek Gab Game Night, John, and ask him how he found Cuphead. And, and I want to st stress this, because apparently there are a large number of people out there who don't quite grasp this concept. So I'm going to explain it, hopefully, in small words so that it's very, very, very clear so that even games journalists who are not notorious for the strength of their intellect, even those people can understand the point I'm about to make. I didn't buy Cuphead. Not because it's a bad game, not because it's a 
you know, anything reprehensible, but because it's not my style of game. It's not something I personally like, but I am intellectually advanced enough. I am morally advanced enough. I am mature enough to realize that there are many good things, many well-made things, many skillfully executed things, which nevertheless exist outside the sphere of things that I myself find enjoyable. And just because I don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. I think Cuphead's art style is mind-blowing. I think it's awesome. It's completely unique, or at least I don't know of any other game that has done something like it. It is very much reminiscent of cartoons from the 20s and 30s, and I just love that. I love the idea. The game itself, the gameplay, is not gameplay I personally enjoy, and I don't have to also whine because it's too tough for me. There are games that I just do not have the reflexes to play well, like Ninja Gaiden. These are games that are specifically aimed at a hardcore crowd, and that is fine. I don't have to cry about it. I don't have to whine about it. I don't have to demand that developers either dumb down their game or include a skip boss button because it's not aimed at me. Because once again, I am more emotionally mature than just about, and, and there are exceptions, there are good exceptions, than just about every single games journalist in existence. I take that, I say that only because the last week has proven this to be a case. So having gotten that out of the way, having gotten that caveat out of the way, that I didn't play Cuphead because it's not my kind of game, but it looks like a great game. It looks like an enjoyable game. To get a verdict on that, whether or not it's a great and enjoyable game, we are going to go to the member of our hosting staff who actually played the game. John, what did you think? It is a fantastic game. I bought it just because of the art. Uh, you, you mentioned the art style. It is you say you say unique, but it is a 100% uh, homage to the old cartoons of like the 30s. They even uh, the soundtrack as well, which they are selling separately. You can pay 10 bucks and get the soundtrack too. It's all uh, 30s jazz music, and it's you ever see like the old Steamboat Willie cartoon? You know. The, the eyes look the same, you know, the Mickey Mouse eyes where they look like stretched out Pac-Mans and everybody's wearing those white gloves rolled up at the cuffs with the three lines on the back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the art style is 1930s cartoons. Uh, that alone was enough the to... Style uh, animation. And, and I, the style of animation and it is animated beautifully. Uh, I saw someone... Uh, I saw... Oliver Campbell actually playing it uh, on his Twitch stream for a couple minutes. And I, I immediately just closed the stream, not just because his streams are boring, but because uh, I, I didn't want to see any more of the game. I was like, okay, playing this, it's got to happen. Um, what can I say about the game itself? For, for anybody wondering what type of game it is, like, yeah, okay, so it's this beautifully animated thing. What type of game this is? So you're, you, you play this little character, Cuphead, and he runs and jumps and shoots. This game, uh, from a, to compare it to other video games, this game is, plays a lot like a Mega Man game. Believe it or not, it plays like a Mega Man game. But they strip out most of the levels. Uh, the whole idea of the game is that you go around the map and you find... Uh, you know, the, the backstory is that you've got to take down all these other people who owe the devil money. And so you just go around and you find the next fight, and it's a big boss fight. And, and so it's everything that's uh, fun about Mega Man because there's power-ups that you can buy and, and, like, different ways to trick out your character so that he behaves differently. But the gameplay is run, dash, jump, shoot. That's it. And even the and it's all put in that cartoon style. Uh, the the characters' animations. You know when he shoots, right? All he does is sticks his finger out like a gun, right, with a thumb sticking up. 
and it just goes click, 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 and it just keeps shooting. Uh, you know, it's just crazy cartoon action. Um, why do they say it's hard? I finished the first uh, level, the, the first set of bosses, and that includes five big boss fights and uh, two run-and-gun levels, which are more like traditional Mega Man levels where you've got to get from point A to point B. There's jumping in platforms and enemies in the way and all sorts of things. Um, and here's the here's why this game is genius. Uh, so so not only was it a brilliant idea art-wise and, and music-wise and, and direction-wise, it is a beautiful, beautiful game. It's also a beautifully designed game. Uh, Daddy Warpig mentioned Ninja Gaiden, right? It's reminiscent of those old arcade games, those old Nintendo games where they're really, really hard, but if you memorize the patterns, you know how to win, and you just beat it every time you want to play. Um, even today, I could load up Ninja Gaiden on my emulator and finish it uh, maybe without dying, or without dying, without continuing, right? Without dying three times. Uh, because I've played it, I know the patterns. Cuphead does something absolutely brilliant because the game is set up that way, where all the bosses have a certain uh, attacks and movements and, and, and things, right? Uh, and yet all they have to do is they vary the timing of those actions and they vary what actions they do. And there's enough variables that you you rarely beat the the fight on the first try and on the second third or fourth tries you finally have learned enough of the mechanics and where to move that you can finish it if you want a perfect score and that's that's the added thing that, that they put in they score you at the end of every fight so if you want to finish it faster and if you want to do it without getting hit and if you want to do all these things not only do you have to know all the attack patterns uh, the timing is random. Like, like uh, an enemy is going to show up from the right side of the screen, and he's going to fly in like a zigzag pattern towards the bottom left, right? Okay, but the time at which that thing appears on the screen can vary by, you know, one or two seconds either way. So sometimes it'll come early, and sometimes it'll come late. So you can't memorize the fights. Uh, so it's that perfect blend of learning how to play and then in real time reacting to what happens on screen and that's what that's what brings it from just you know a mindless nintendo game to uh something actually difficult and and when you accomplish when you when you finish the boss when you when you beat it or if you get a perfect score you actually feel a little bit of accomplishment you're like yeah that was fun that was great yeah that it's go ahead no, I was going to say, like, like Daddy Warpig, I'm not really a hardcore gamer, but I, I am more of a retro gamer. So Cuphead sounds right up my alley then, because I will just take a, a Mega Man game. Like, we're, we're talking hard ones, like even 1 or 9, which I have beaten. And I'm not that good, but I, I am just geologically meticulous and relentless. I'll just keep beating my head against the wall until the wall crumbles, until I just... Breathe like slide through a level by chance by the skin of my teeth. So, yeah, I might have to pick that one this, up. This is for you. Uh, any retro gamer is gonna absolutely love this game. Uh, it's it, it is. It's it's just like it's just like I said. It's it's got that same feel, only it's genuinely hard, not Nintendo hard. Right, not Ninja Gaiden hard, where you know they, you know, some designer put the monster placements perfectly so that you, if you jump at this time, <laughs> you you get knocked into the pit and die. Right, like yeah, you have they to like know. level sixty or something. Yeah, t totally terrible. Or anyway, perfect, absolutely perfect for someone like you, Brian. Um, it's amazing. Uh, it's not perfect, uh, and I was really go ahead. No, that's just sweet, please. Uh, it, it's not perfect. Um, I have been playing the Steam version, and <clears throat> fair warning for anybody who hasn't picked it up yet when it gets when I get it on Steam, uh, there are a couple of notable bugs uh, that I ran into. Uh, the first one's kind of minor because I was grinding on one of the uh, run and gun levels, 
uh, the bosses I find uh, the bosses in the first stage are actually pretty easy, but I found in the run and gun levels, uh, it's very hard to get the perfect score, which requires you to dash through the level in record time. Um, and I spent a couple of hours on this level not knowing that the record time is unattainable. Um, I, I found some YouTube videos and comments that claim that it's actually not possible to get a perfect score on it yet. I'm, I'm not sure about that. But uh, I spent a couple of hours and brought down my time on that level by like 10 seconds. Uh, but during the latter runs, I noticed a lot of lag, which is weird. Uh, it's a beautiful... Um, like it's a beautifully animated game, but after playing for a couple of hours, I'm getting uh, frame skips. I'm getting uh, the game will stutter, and uh, in a game like that where you need absolutely precise timing on your jumps and dashes and things, that can end the run right there. You know, thankfully each run is a minute. Uh, the other bug was it, which is actually huge, uh, it, it actually stopped me from continuing the game. Uh, is you can't play all of the game with a controller. When you plug in the controller the, on the Steam version, it messes up the menuing um, and the hotkeys that you need to maneuver around the map, and there's actually characters that you can talk to, and you can't talk to any characters and you can't do a lot of actions if you have a controller. Uh, enabled. In fact, the infamous tutorial level, I'd never accessed. I just started playing the game and had to figure everything out on my own because uh, with the controller plugged in from the beginning, I couldn't access the tutorial. And then after I'd finished the first island, I couldn't leave because I couldn't interact with the guy to say, hey, I finished, move, let me move on. Um, and it was at that point that I figured out that it was a bug, right? <laughs> I was like, okay, I finished everything. I know that there's a bug here. So I, eventually I figured out that I had to uh, disconnect the controller and uh, maneuver on the keyboard, which is when I found out that I could talk to other people on the island and got a bunch of other stuff. Ooh, unless they fix the bug, that might be a deal breaker for me because I'm just so hardware to think of a keyboard as this is a tool for writing that I just can't play games with it. Yeah, but uh, it's it's perfectly playable. You just have to know that you, know, you start the game without the controller okay. set up, and after you you know. As soon as you enter a level, like you enter a tutorial, you're stuck in a boss fight, go ahead and re-enable the controller. They even have it. They must be aware of the bug because there's right in the interface, there's a button that says uh, remove this controller. And then there's a button that says add a controller. And so you can just, you can basically r remove the controller and, and be able to access the rest of the world at any time you want. It's a bit of a pain because you're switching between keyboard and controller. But for the actual uh, fighting and the running and gunning, you can use the control. Mm -hmm. it's, okay. it's the menuing and the, the exploring that requires the keyboard, uh, which is too so bad. Would you, would you recommend that people um, put off uh, buying it until they get the get that patch, those bugs patched? Does it cripple gameplay enough to recommend that? Not at all. Um, first of all, uh, since it's easily avoidable, anybody who's listened to me uh, knows the problem. The, the problem and why it's such a bad bug is that it's not documented anywhere, and it's, it, it's game-breaking. Like I, I, you, if you don't know about it and you play with 100% controller, the first thing you find out is that you can't do all your menuing on the controller. Sometimes you have to take your hands off and hit the escape key and do a couple of things on the keyboard. And then the other thing is that you finish the first island and you can't leave. Like You can't proceed with the game. So it's a really, really bad bug, but if you know about it, you just work around it. You can avoid it. Okay. So, so, yeah, so I, I highly recommend the game to anybody who's even marginally interested. All right. Um, uh, thanks for that thorough uh, preview. And uh, we will uh, – I want to hear next week about how far you've gotten on finishing the game. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to finish the game. I'm, I'm in the shit now. I just found out that uh, I've been getting A-plus – uh, grades on all my runs, and and I've just been informed by Nathan Housley in the chat that there's a grade S, so I'm I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> with uh, with that said, um, let's uh, let's jump to Flatliners real quick. Um, Flatliners 
the original Flatliners was a 1990 movie starring, and, and you've got to hear this cast, really. You've got to hear this cast. Starring Kiefer Sutherland, Julia Roberts, Kevin Bacon, Oliver Platt, and also William Baldwin in the five major roles. Those are the five major characters from the movie. So there is, uh, it is kind of a B movie and it's kind of a horror movie, but the cast, they managed to get great up and coming stars. I mean, Kevin Bacon, Julia Roberts, Kiefer Sutherland, Oliver Platt, those guys are, are not only great actors, but uh, three of them, the three leads went on to become legendary actors. So it is, the movie is about people who are med students, who decide that what they want to do is explore the boundary between life and death. So they start setting up a series of experiments in which they get killed medically and then get revived, resuscitated by their other med school uh, friends. And there are various supernatural effects that... Uh, happen because of that, and the movie veers hard into um, karmic retribution horror. Uh, it is, I don't know, it was a really big movie in the 1990s, and it gets talked about a lot by people who were around to see it, but I don't know that it's a movie that a lot of modern-day people go back and watch and weren't around to to watch it the first time. Um do you guys know? Do you have any opinions or impressions on that? On what in particular? And everybody's quiet. <laughs> no, I've actually seen the Flatliners. It was a long time ago, but I remember digging it. Do you have any? Never mind. Um, Flatliners, twenty seventeen, is a. It's not exactly. It's a. It, it's a reboot. They took the same core central concept, came up with an entirely original script, and uh, then throw it out there. It has Ellen Page, who is a you know a pretty big star uh, in certain sense. It's got Diego Luna, who was uh, the pilot from the recent Rogue One movie. It's got Nina Dobrev, um, who is from The Vampire Diaries, and then. Uh, the rest of the cast kind of trails off. Kiefer Sutherland shows up in a mostly extraneous uh, supporting role, but the rest of the cast is nowhere near the, you know, gathering of legends that they got for the first Flatliners. Here's the difference between the two. I want to boil this down. Is Flatliners a bad movie? 2017. Is Flatliners 2017 a bad movie? No, it's not a terrible movie. It is, however, a paint-by-numbers monster mash. It is a supernatural horror that we've seen again and again, and if it, it doesn't do anything to stand out either in execution or in concept. They've taken something that was mysterious and spooky and mystical and kind of hard to understand, which is one of the things that undergirds horror, and turned it into another monster with stayed straight rules that if you follow the rules, you can defeat the monster. It's not mysterious. It's not mystical. It's not very interesting. And the fact that it's one monster is... Uh, is antithetical to what the original was, where this kind of events were, uh, you didn't know why exactly they were happening. They happened because of them venturing beyond the bounds of life and death, venturing into the other realm and coming back. And so it is, it, they took a lot of the interest, a lot of the allure, a lot of the glamour from the original and just drained it off and killed it dead. Um, so it was an all right horror movie. If you like horror movies, it's all right. You can go and enjoy it and stuff, but you have to actually, in order for it to be scary at all, you have to actually buy into the characters. You have to actually care about the characters a little bit. You have to have some empathy for them, and I'm not sure they did a great job of putting in characters that people are going to have empathy for. Specifically, this, uh, like so many modern entertainment, this movie is... Uh, peopled by parahumans. That is, beings which kind of look like they're human, but don't really 
act or speak in ways that are consonant with what humans would do, even movie humans. When you're writing dialogue for a book or a movie, you have to condense things. It's not exactly like real language, because real languages is full of pauses, it's full of hymns and haws, it's full of people not saying half the sentence because the other person already knows what they mean. It's for, full of uh, pointless digressions and circling back around earlier parts of conversation. It's terrible to read. It's terrible to listen to. So you have to create dialogue that is evocative and interesting that nevertheless hews close to the sense of what a real person might say if they were incredibly witty, if they were incredibly intelligent, and if they had you know a year to hone their conversation to pick the exact right words for the next sentence they're about to say. If that were all true, this is something like what a real human would say. This movie doesn't even do that. And this is common in a lot of uh, media nowadays to where they don't quite act like humans. They act like robots who are reciting a program that someone else uh, punched up for them and they're just following along with it. I'm, I'm not, this is not a result of the performances. This is not the actor's fault. They're doing a good delivery on bad lines. It's the fault of the people who wrote bad lines. George Lucas was infamous for writing sentences that were almost impossible to say. Um, Harrison Ford, who we'll be talking about in a few minutes in connection with the other movie, uh, said, look, George, you can write this stuff, but you sure can't say it. Um, that is one sense of awkwardness that you can stick in language or dialogue for a movie or book that kind of slows the audience down, makes it choppy. This movie is just straight out people talking like no human being would ever talk, people saying things that no human being would ever say. And it's, it takes you out of the movie. It makes it harder to empathize with characters. This movie does not do as great a job of setting up its horror as, for example, It, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. Now, It relied heavily on stings and jump scares, but it was fine because they were well integrated in the material and it was startling and it was scary because of that, uh, or, or that added to the tension. This movie does not necessarily rely on jump scares and stings as much, but it doesn't rely on much of anything at all. It relies on you, the viewer, getting into the mindset of what would I be feeling if this were really happening to me? And that's not something that horror does a lot in modern days. And it's not something that the audience necessarily expects Specs, and it's in order to do that, in order to draw you in so that you're thinking uh, or feeling on an unconscious level without being, you know, without analyzing it, wow, if this were happening to me, that would be terrifying because it's true. If that were happening to you, you would be panicked, you would be terrified, and the actor's performance has to sell that. You have to believe in them as a person. You have to care about them as a person so that you're drawn in. Your sense of empathy is tricked. It tricks you into empathizing with fictional characters on the screen. That's how fiction works. That's what's at the core of fiction is the situations and the description and the dialogue and who the characters are drawing your sense of empathy, drawing on your sense of empathy, tricking your sense of empathy to pull you into the story so that you emotionally invest in the uh, outcomes, in the fate of people who don't actually exist. So that when Spock dies in Wrath of Khan, you get sad. When Old Yeller gets shot, you get sad. When, uh, when Dumbledore is murdered, you get sad. Sorry, spoilers for some really, really old stuff there. You'll just have to roll with it. If you haven't uh, been involved, you haven't seen those or read those yet, you'll just have to roll with it. It's too late now. It's been 10 years. If you're watching Statute all of limitations has, has run out. Um, you, you have to care about the characters in order to find those moments poignant in order to find them painful in order to, uh, for them to affect you. And this movie does not do a good enough job at presenting characters that you empathize with because they feel real. They don't do a good enough job at that to draw you in enough to really make the horror work. If you're a lightweight, if you're a person who's easily uh, scared, if you're very sensitive uh, to 
plights of other people, if you're very tenderhearted, this movie would probably be enough scares to, you know, make you nervous and make you have an enjoyable horror experience. If you're a diehard horror fanatic who can see tons of blood running down halls and not even feel a single smidge or flicker of emotion, this movie will not do it for you. You'll just be like, oh, okay, well, yes, that was a movie that horror-like things happen. So if you could take that uh, and analyze that and understand that where you specifically as a person lie on on that uh, continuum, on that spectrum, from absolutely the easiest, most tender-hearted person who cries when you tell them the story of a of a tortoise being flipped over and dying in the sun, to a person who can watch absolutely all of the Saw movies and laugh at every single character who gets killed because you just doesn't bother you. Wherever you are in that spectrum, the more you are towards the tenderhearted part of the spectrum, the more this movie will affect you and the more you will get the experience that you're going there to get from a horror movie. The more you are towards the saw don't even phase me uh, side of the spectrum, the less and less this movie will matter because it, it sets up a very mild form of horror that isn't uh, very compelling. And I, it's because the characters just don't resonate quite is real and also the characters themselves um aren't set up to be necessarily very uh many of them aren't set up to necessarily be very uh relatable or um sympathetic and they aren't nat characters you'll naturally feel sympathetic for they're all very very successful they're all going to a top end medical school they're all very wealthy and while they have personal problems they're all young they're all super hot and there isn't really a save the puppy moment for uh most of them that makes you really invest they try in a couple of cases but it doesn't make you invest in the characters so is Flatliners good? I enjoyed it. It was an okay horror movie. It's not a great horror movie. It's not a horror movie that's going to be that's going to impact most audience members uh, to where they're actually feel the emotions you're supposed to out of a horror movie. And so most people are going to be kind of bored. It's just not that compelling a movie. And they also drained all of the mystery, all of the suspense, all of the um, all of the allure, uh, all of the mystique out of the original Flatliners, and it's a flat, very, very flat remake. Did you listen to the most recent episode of On the Books, by the way? I have not yet. I will wow, because you... No, that's fine, because you just um, delivered a, a lecture there that could have gone straight out of it, like about dialogue. Because I talked about how dialogue shouldn't exactly emul emulate real-world speech. It should be like the, the best of real-world speech, as if your characters have kind of had, had a night to sleep on it. You know, <laughs> so it dovetails nicely. Um, so go back and uh, not that you weren't already going to be doing that already, uh, our uh, loyal audience members, but uh, be sure to go back and, and listen to Geek Gab on the books for the rest of that, for an expansion on the theme. You will learn how not to annoy your editor with, uh, with the draft you submit. Um. All right. Uh, that's unless you guys have questions. That's pretty much everything uh, I've got on Flatliners. It was all right, not great. Um, moving on, Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Um, so let me go into this by saying, those of you who haven't seen it, is there anybody who's likely to be listening to this who hasn't seen Blade Runner? I mean, I guess, I guess it's possible. It's possible. The original Blade Runner had Harrison Ford in 1982. Okay, 1982 Harrison Ford at the height of his charm, at the height of his roguishness, at the height of his appeal, um, playing a film noir police officer whose job it was to hunt down and kill rogue androids. They called them androids, but what they really were were uh, engineered humans, engineered human beings, genetically designed human beings. These, and because they were not human, were not treated as human, they were treated as a slave class, they had a tendency to go rogue. And when they went rogue and went off the beam and stopped doing the slave work that they were created for, which could be various uh, industry mining, uh, what they call euphemistically pleasure models, um, 
combat models, et cetera, et cetera, they uh, went rogue. They would have to be hunted down and killed. And there is a special breed of cop called Blade Runners who would do that. It's based, it's not based. Based is too strong a word. It's loosely sort of kind of maybe inspired by the Philip K. Dick book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Um, and I believe the actual Blade Runner name and concept comes from that book. Um, it does not. It doesn't? It never appears in the book? My apologies. No, no, um, what happened, well, what happened was that uh, the, the same film company had the rights to a William S. Burroughs novel, I believe it was, called Blade Runner, where there was about like, um, where the national healthcare system gets messed up and so it's basically like provisioning or rationing of health services and Blade Runners are like underground black market surgeons. Huh. Well, and that certainly Scott, makes more sense. Yeah, and Scott just, he had the rights to both, so he just liked the Burroughs title better and stuck it on the Philip K. Dick project. Um, so several androids escape. We're talking about the original movie now, very first movie. Several androids escape. Um, Harrison Ford is sent after them to kill them and uh, encounters them at various points during the movie and also encounters another character named Rachel. Again, I'm going to spoil a movie, but it came out in 1982, okay? 1982. That was, allow me to do the math really, really quickly on my fingers, 35 years old. So you haven't seen it. Statue of Limitations is long since expired. I'm sorry. Um, he meets a character named Rachel who is ostensibly the daughter of the head of the Tyrell Corporation. And the Tyrell Corporation is has the monopoly on replicate. That's what these things are called, replicants, on replicant technology. They have the monopoly on it. And so the Tyrell Corporation, its CEO, the person who devised, who came up with replicant technology, his daughter, uh, played by Sean Young, which most of you Tragically, this retroactively ruins a lot of the movies she was in. You'll remember her almost certainly most <laughs> Ace Ventura Pet Detective, where she plays Einhorn. Um, so, uh, Sean Young is in the movie, and she looks very, very prim, very proper, very beautiful. And it turns out that this beautiful woman, who's ostensibly the daughter of Tyrell, is actually a replicant, but Decker uh, falls in love with her anyway, and at the end of the movie, the two of them disappear. They drive off together to try and... Because Blade Runner, she's gone rogue. Blade Runners are going to be coming after her. Plus, there is evidence that unlike every other replicant, replicants are built with a built-in lifespan. After six years, they're dead. That's it. They live for six years, and then they hemorrhage and die. Um... And that's what drives the plot, is the replicants come to Earth to try and uh, avert the troubles caused by this built-in uh, lifespan. But Sean Young's character, Rachel, doesn't have a built-in lifespan that they know of. She could live for however long a regular person lives for. So rather than, when she goes rogue, rather than having her hunt, hunted down by Blade Runners or doing it himself, Deckard escapes. Um taking her with them, and they head off to the vasty unknown to try and live out their life beyond the reach of the law. So that's the end of the first movie. Now, there is some... I'm going to mention this because it. the important point is 2049 doesn't deal with it directly. It doesn't give you any deliberate answers. The question is raised because at one point they say there's six... Uh, people escaped, but only five of them you see getting retired. That's what they call it when the Blade Runner kills a replicant. He retires them. Only five of them see getting you see getting retired on screen, and so the question is, oh, is Deckard himself a replicant? All I can say is there's original footage, and, and Ridley Scott himself has recut the movie. There are at least five cuts that I know of. The U.S. theatrical cut, the European cut, there uh, was another the uh, unedited U.S. theatrical cut, a director's cut, and the final cut. Holy crap, I remembered the names of all five of those. That's startling. There are actually seven. That, seven. That's amazing. I'm looking at them right now. There, there are uh, a total of seven. Anyways, he's recut this so many times. In one recut of the movie, he stuck in footage from his movie Legend with Tom Cruise, which is all about uh, unicorns. Okay, it's all about unicorns. And... <laughs> 
he stuck footage of this unicorn in, which tied into one of the other characters who compulsively made origami, and he put down this origami unicorn at the end when Deckard is going rogue and escaping. And now, in one of the later cuts, he actually plays into this, is Deckard a replicant? Deckard is not a replicant. Deckard could never be a replicant in the original cut of the movie. In order for him to be a replicant who escaped at the same time as all of these other skin jobs, who did it just a few days before the beginning of the movie, uh, his boss would have to be on it. The entire LAPD would have to be on it. Everybody who interacts with him, who knows him uh, in the rest of uh, the city would have to be in on it, pretending that this particular replicate was in point of fact a cop. It, it, it is not possible. It never happened. There was footage of the other person being retired that was cut because the scene just didn't work, made it a little bit too long in a movie that was overly long and slow and operatic to begin with. The reason why Blade Runner matters. The reason why it matters so much is because Ridley Scott took images of a place called the Forbidden City from um, China, from Hong Kong, I believe, which was this huge section of buildings that were cut off from the entire rest of the city. They were small. And nobody was supposed to live there. Uh, people were not supposed to live there. And so everything they had was jury rigged. Everything they had was patches upon patches upon patches. And if you've read, for example, Snow Crash, if you've read, uh, for example, um, Ready Player One, you'll know that a lot of people have drawn on these concepts to infuse into cyberpunk and on the visuals of Hong Kong and on the visuals of this place. And Ridley Scott was the first American director, and he did it in such a good and great and compelling uh, way that his visual style and aesthetic was stamped uh, intimately into the cyberpunk genre and has been repeated and borrowed and iterated on uh, a lot, a lot, a lot. If you look at the beginning of Avatar, um, the Pocahontas in Space movie by James Cameron, the very first scenes in Avatar when they're back home on Earth, where there's a ton of people crowded around, that all draws from Blade Runner. It is deeply buried in uh, the cinematic genre. It is deeply buried. Every book's TV shows, movies all draw upon the visuals of Blade Runners. It was very distinctive. It was very evocative. And he did a great job with the cinematography. The rest of Blade Runner I, I, is not so exciting, but that's why it matters. That's why people are still talking about it so many, many years later. So these are the important points. And these are the important points because they come up in Blade Runner 2049. Deckard and Rachel escaped. Rachel was a replicant. Replicants were banned uh, or uh, went rogue and Blade Runners had to hunt them down and retire them. So now we start 2049. Ryan Gosling plays a Blade Runner, a cop who works for the LAPD, whose job it is to hunt down and retire replicants. That's where the movie begins. I'm going to stop for a second and let my co-host, and, and actually take a sip of water and let my co-host get a word in edgewise. I think <laughs> that you, I mean, you touched on something that's really important about the Blade Runner franchise is that it's got that, uh, that aesthetic and the, the whole, the whole cyberpunk dark future aesthetic in film has roots even deeper than that. They go all the way back to the 19, I want to say, 24 film called Metropolis. Have mm. either of you heard of that? You're saying Ridley Scott's, uh, Ridley Scott's yes. visuals go back to Metropolis? Yes, the, the, the vision of the future. It, it, it is, it is a, a long, science fiction has a long pedigree, and the visuals uh, go all the way back to Metropolis, which is a German film from, from the 20s. And obviously, uh, Scott's, um, Scott's angle was obviously the, the Chinese influence, but the, this, the dystopian city where all the people packed together and, and the lights and everything, if you go back and watch Metropolis, which actually they restored just a few years ago, they found uh, old footage that they many scenes were lost from the movie but apparently they 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 were like sitting in a can in Argentina or something they so, they go ahead um given that metropolis influenced blade runner and blade runner influenced all these other movies this new movie surprisingly enough does not in i don't know in any scene if it really image uh, it reflects the original Blade Runner's visual aesthetic. Um, 
Well, I mean, let's let's talk about that. I mean, this is why you're gonna you're gonna come and see the movie, right? People who watch Blade Runner are, are hoping for that sort of visual experience again, and uh, you get it and you don't. They they uh, they do all the shots. They in fact they put in a lot more. They, there's that that wonderful shot at the beginning of Blade Runner where the car is swooping in in the Los Angeles and it's raining and the buildings are tall and and there's lights. But down there in between the the buildings, you know, it's it, it it's lively. There's a lot of people there. It's it's dirty. It's dingy. It's lived in, right? And they do they do a lot of shots that are similar. Um, where you know a car is flying in or over something and in one case yeah it's downtown los angeles and it's the same sort of shot where you see you know it's it's busy and it's a lot and not quite as alive um but the other shots are sort of different shots of the future like here's a barren wasteland here's a junkyard here's uh you know here's this great wall keeping the pacific ocean at bay that sort of thing where where they do the same style of shot but the the what they're showing the the background is different it's not the same feel as uh the original blade runner which was which was always claustrophobic Here's my um, judgment on Blade Runner 2049. My judgment on 2049 is that it is not actually uh, a Blade Runner film. It doesn't share the same themes. It doesn't share the same aesthetic. It doesn't share the same uh, ideas or plot points. It is, in point of fact, and I'm not saying it's a bad movie right now. I'm not saying it's a bad movie. Um, I'll get into my impression of the quality later, but... It is not a Blade Runner movie. Now, let's take it back, for example, to the original Star Trek movies. One, two, three, four. Star Trek The Motion Picture, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, Star Trek uh, Search for Spock, Star Trek The Voyage Home. You could tell that each of those was a Star Trek movie because they shared, in addition to uh, the common cast, they shared common themes, common ideas, so on and so forth. Each of those movies was a Star Trek movie. This is a movie that is not a Blade Runner movie that, unless they slapped the name Blade Runner on it and cast Harrison Ford in it, uh, you would not know that this was a Blade Runner movie. You, If you cast somebody else besides Harrison Ford, or heck, even if you kept Harrison Ford, but had different character names and a different movie name, you would not know that this was a sequel to the original Blade Runner. It just does not... Uh, so if what you're looking for is another Blade Runner or an extension of Blade Runner uh, or a reprise of Blade Runner, you're not going to find it here because that's not what this movie is. I'm not saying that makes the movie bad, but it makes the movie not Blade Runner. Would you say it's kind of a spiritual sequel then? Because the first one was kind of a hodgepodge no. film anyway. Really? He's, he, he's, no. he's saying the opposite. You, you haven't seen it, Brian. No, I was thinking of seeing it today. I was kind of waiting to see what you guys thought. Uh, well, I think it's a good movie, and, and you should definitely see it, but Daddy Warpig's saying quite the opposite. It is a literal narrative successor. It is literally a sequel. It is not spiritually a sequel. What I meant was in the sense of being, because he said it was like a a different movie with the title slapped on it, which happened to the first film. So I'm kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, is it? are we kind of getting, is history kind of repeating there? That's what I meant. That's that's tough to answer. I, I don't quite I, feel the same I, way about it as Daddy Warpig. I, I don't actually understand the question. <laughs> that's fine. Don't, don't worry about it. It's just kind of food for thought. Carry on. Um, that if you if you like the Blade Runner, if you want to go something that is you want to go see something that is like the original Blade Runner, this movie is not it. It will not give you that same Blade Runner kick. Now, let's back up. This movie is. It flows better. It is not as choppy. The director has a more sure hand on the camera. He knows exactly what he's going for and, you know, more or less nails it. I mean, he's no Steven Spielberg. Um, and it doesn't feel – the original Blade Runner, if you saw um, the American release or the European release or the uh, American the, – the original uncut version – it, it, it's a movie that the director is desperately trying 
to find out what the movie is as he's shooting it. And it was only in editing that it comes together and it does not work. The movie does not come together as well as, say, Star Wars, which had similar problems, where Star Wars, the movie, as we know, it was created entirely in the editing room. That, that entire last section of the Death Star uh, advancing on the planet Yavin and the countdown to the planet being destroyed, all of that was manufactured out of whole cloth in the editing base. That was not part of what was originally shot. They pieced together a bunch of material to draw that narrative out, and they did an excellent job. They did a compelling job, and it's what makes Star Wars work. Without that last scene of attacking the Death Star as it's going to blow up the Rebel base, the whole movie falls apart. Nothing. The whole movie is pointless. Everybody would hate it. But Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, the 1982 Blade Runner, does not come together. The director was thrashing around and shooting a lot of stuff and did not quite manage to piece together a coherent enough narrative out of the pieces he had. Whereas this movie, um, 2049, from the beginning had a script. They knew what they were doing. They shot the coverage they needed to put that script on screen, and they put that script on screen. They succeeded in the director's art, at least to that level. Now, John liked the movie more than I do, I'm sensing, and I'm guessing he liked the plot more than I did, so I'm going to step back and let him... Uh... Well, I, I don't want to spoil the plot too much. It's a direct sequel to Blade Runner, uh, which, uh, honestly, I would have preferred the flip the opposite. I would have preferred a, a spiritual successor that um, you know, was more of a cyberpunk movie and less of a you know, what happened, you know, as a result of Deckard's actions so many years ago. You know, but, here's, go ahead. Here's the thing. Deckard didn't need to be in this movie. Not at all. No, Not there even. was no reason for his character to be there. No, it, it, the, uh, the it, it's too bad because the plot starts off bad and has uh, a, a great counter twist near the end of the movie, which you're relieved that it, it happens that way. But the uh, the end of the movie is a complete wreck. And as uh, as the now well-known quote from, uh, what's his name, Joss Whedon goes, what's the problem with the third act? Well, it was your first two acts. <laughs> um, everything in the movie, okay, in order to set up a story, you have to have an assumed backstory, right? You have to have a presumed past that the characters have had before they come on screen so that that presumed past that you never see directly, you don't have to do flashbacks to it, you don't have to show it, that presumed past influences every action the characters take so that they, when they come on screen, you can intuit what that past was by what they do. The presumed past of, the, of this movie, as an example, uh, the main character, Ryan, Ryan Gosling's character, is a Blade Runner who is also a replicant, um, whose name is Kay. He comes on screen, and we have a presumed past that he's done this a lot. He's retired other replicants before. And there's casual references to it, and you get that feeling. The captain, or the lieutenant, at one point, played by Robin Wright, uh, Princess Buttercup, uh, says at one point, well, that doesn't usually happen to you. Okay, so there's an imp a presumed past that's influencing her dialogue so that we can kind of sense what it is. The presumed past of this entire movie has absolutely nothing to do with Deckard. He has no presumed past that influences any other character in the movie. If you saw the trailer, you see him living in that wrecked place all by himself, all by his lonesome. And the explicit description we're given, this may be a slight, it may be a slight spoiler, I apologize, is that that's what he's been doing for 27 years. He's never seen anyone else. He's never interacted with anyone else. No one else has seen him. No one else has interacted with him. He's lived in isolation in this wrecked building for 27 years. He has no presumed past. Therefore, his character is entirely divorced 
from the action of the movie. His character has no place in the movie. His character has no tie to any other character or any events those other characters have gone to. He is utterly, totally, and in every other way, completely extraneous. And nothing that they do with the character during the actual movie ties him into the events uh, strongly at all. He doesn't need to be there. That entire character doesn't need to be there. Absolutely right. There is no reason for it. Um, so this isn't just another one of those things. I mean, I don't know what is going on with the writers. I mean, obviously you get the star power, you get the people, hey, remember Harrison Ford was in Blade Runner? Yeah, you get him in on the movie. He didn't need to be in the movie. Even though, you know, the some of the overarching reasons for the plot you know th this is a sequel like the they're dealing with the consequences of deckard running off with rachel right like that's part of why things are happening but he didn't need to be part of the movie like he had already played his part you you see here's the thing you could have replaced decker as a character with any one of the other replicants who helped hide rachel um and it would have made more sense and it would have made a better movie because that could have been a replicate who had been on the run and been hiding and been interacting with people. And Ryan Gosling would have had to, you know, try and track him down. He could have um, been a much more interesting character. Any one of those other replicants could have been a much more interesting character. Dave Bautista, you could have stretched out his role so that he was one of these, you know, that, that he survived and he would take Deckard's place and the movie would have been a hundred times better because he would have had a reason to be involved in all of the events that went on and was involved in the implied backstory, uh, the presumed backstory of the movie, presumed history. Yeah. And, and there's another, there's another thing too, where it, it tries to pretend to be that same sort of film noir story, but there's no real, there's no real villain. There's no real antagonist. There's no like if you're expecting there to be, you know, it's a film noir. It sets up you expect to be this weird scandal, uh, crazy conspiracy or, or something. You know, it, there's always something more going on than meets the eye. And in this story, there isn't. In, in this movie, there's far, far less going on than meets the eye. Uh, exactly. And that, that was true of the original Blade Runner as well. Um, so but, this movie. I want to say, like, we're, we're hanging on the problems with the narrative. Like, it's a bad story, but it. I thought it was enjoyable to watch. Uh, at the end, I was doing a little bit of what did I just watch, but uh, it's not like it's not like the the it's not like the acting was bad. It's not like the the uh, visuals were bad. Um, he was obviously trying to recreate a lot of the shots in Blade Runner. Uh, it's not like the vision of the future uh, was necessarily. Uh, some of it was really interesting. Some of it was kind of dull. But um, and the I think the best thing about the film was actually the score. Um, they tried to recreate that sort of '80s synth vibe that Blade Runner had, and uh, for the most part, it was really enjoyable. Um, special effects were spectacular, but you'd expect that. Uh, special effects are pretty much typically spectacular nowadays. Um, special effects in just about every movie we've seen this year has been spectacular. Um, and that, that the problem with Blade Runner as a movie, with updating it for current year, is that the special effects were mind-blowing when Blade Runner came out but it is almost impossible to blow people's minds with visuals nowadays because they've gotten so good because people have gotten so adept at making absolutely insanely gorgeous visuals. If you're going to make, and they tried to do this, you can sense this in the movie. They tried to make this another visual landmark like the original Blade Runner was so that people could come and have their minds blown like their minds were blown by the original Blade Runner. But, but, um, there, you can't do that nowadays with 
maybe someone like James Cameron could invest a billion dollars and blow people's minds again with with some kind of visuals. But um, short of that, you just are not going to impress people with the visuals. You can't hang the entire movie on visuals alone. And they were trying in a lot of ways to hang the movie on the visuals alone. Yeah, and it's it's like I said, they recreated some of the shots not recreated the shots, not in the way that Watchmen did, but like they, they recreated the type of shots pretty faithfully. But uh, they didn't do any better than the original Blade Runner. Um, and, and there were really, there are some, when you sit back and think about it, there are some really, really insane shots that you uh, have to work out how they did that. But you know, CGI has to be involved somewhere, so it's not mysterious. And part of what, what people in the 80s had going for them is everybody came to the movie and like a magician on the stage they had this mystery of how exactly did they put that to film um which is why making of videos kind of rob uh, special effects of their impact because you know exactly how they uh did it and the more you know about how visuals are achieved the less mystique there is about them the less mystery is about them and the less impressive they are the less you know about how they do the visuals, the more impressed you'll be by special effects. But it, we've kind of reached the point where everybody knows how these things are done, and so there's no mystique to it. There's no mystery to it. There's no, oh my gosh, that's not wire work. That's X and Y and Z. Oh my gosh, those aren't maquettes. That's not uh, claymation. That's really you know computer animation for the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, whatever. We've reached the point where it's not as mysterious, where it's not as impressive, and so people just aren't going to have that same feeling of awe at the fact of the technical achievement itself that they had in the original Blade. Um, Blade Runner 2049 is not a bad movie. It is not a Blade Runner movie. It does not deal with the what themes were eventually drawn out of Blade Runner, what they actually managed to find in the material. And... It introduces a bunch of new themes. It introduces some... The central conflict of the story doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I don't know if I should spoil that or not. It just is completely nonsensical. Um, I, I, I wouldn't spoil that. I would just say that I would I would sum up the, the main thrust of most of the movie and kind of the reason why the narrative falls apart at the end is... Think of it as the, the movie's actually about Ryan Gosling's character and you know what he goes through as a replicant, as opposed to you know the original Blade Runner was about you know Deckard and how do you tell who's a replicant or not? You know one of the things that they establish early on in the movie, which is kind of too bad, but uh, you know what? I, I just it just occurred to me now. This is why the themes are, are different and why it's not a Blade Runner movie because. They established at the beginning of this movie that people more or less can tell who's a replicant and who's not. Like that's baked into the narrative right there at the beginning. Yeah. So it's not about are they human. It's kind of assumed that they are, but they aren't. But uh, the movie's really about you know this K, this character, you know, and how he lives his life and how he deals with you know being a replicant and and you know finding things about what happened to the other replicants that got away, that sort of thing. And, you know, there's lots of, uh, for lack of a better word, personal growth. But, um, but of course, there's some narrative and backstory, and they had to introduce Harrison Ford somewhere. So and the movie completely falls apart narratively at that point. Um, I, I, this movie would have been better if it had been Kay's backstory you were um, investigating. And I, I don't want to give it away. The patch, the, the quick what you could have built the narrative around, but. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they made mistakes and we could write, we could have written a better Blade Runner movie either it, as a better sequel or as a better story about gay. Like at they one could point, gone, could have gone in one direction. They're one point they're searching for a specific character. And if that specific character they're searching for had been related to K and you didn't know it, maybe you suspected it, but it seemed impossible that it turns out they were, then uh, then that would have made a more satisfying narrative because we would have been chasing something that mattered to the viewpoint character. Nothing in this movie really matters to the viewpoint character because there's nothing to do with him. Um, 
we I, maybe we can go into that you know in five six months uh, and script doctorate or something uh, after the movie's been out and people have seen it. It's not going to be spoiled anymore. But that would be my initial reaction: is that person that they're searching for should have been in some way tied to case so that it's him and. Uh, the Dave Bautista character is the venue by which he realizes they are and then eventually finds them. That would have been a cool movie. Um, any last comments, uh, Brian, before we take off? I'm torn. I'd heard from almost everybody else that this was good, but uh, yeah, you're, if you guys' assessment is accurate, it's got some deep flaws that will probably bug me. You're, you're going to enjoy it as a moviegoer and as a, a person who enjoyed the first Blade Runner. You will hate it as a professional writer. Ooh, yeah, that's probably fair. And Any, it didn't uh, help, but uh, I don't disagree. With that. Well, I mean, but then again, what else is new in Hollywood these days? Right? <laughs> any, any last thoughts, uh, John? Uh, that was it. Hey, thanks for listening to another uh, another long episode. Uh, it's really good to talk about that. I, I'm glad to. I, I really. I mean, all right, go see a matinee, everybody. Just see it at matinee. Um, all right, folks. Thanks for tuning in. This has been Geek Gab for October seventh, two thousand and seventeen. Um, once again, uh, if you are on YouTube, please click on subscribe, but also be sure to double secret subscribe so you'll receive the announcements about when our show is going live. You can come in and, and, and get involved in the chat. We've been having talks. By the way, while we've been talking on the show, people have been talking about other movies that have were heavily influenced by Blade Runner. Uh, there was a big discussion of it. Uh, Appleseed, Ghost in the Shell, 80 Police, a bunch of uh, anime movies uh, were heavily influenced buy it and uh obviously manga things like that so if you want to receive a supplemental lesson on everything that's going along um if you want to uh get involved please super double secret subscribe click the subscribe button click the bell button and come in and sit on us live uh it's a it's a complete completely different experience than you'll get just watching the show on youtube uh or listening to us on soundcloud the iTunes store uh, or the Google Play Store. You can do a search for Geek Gab. We're available in all of those places, youtube.com slash geekgab. We appreciate everybody who came in and uh, listened live and contributed to the discussion. We appreciate everyone who will eventually be listening to this later. Thanks for tuning in to Geek Gab, folks. We are leaving for today. But don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.